Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit www.helpforhd.org and sign up for our email newsletter to stay up to date on all that is going on at Help for HD. Get social with us and like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe to Help for HD TV on YouTube and ring the bell for notifications. everyone and thanks so much for tuning in to help for hd live this show is made possible because of a grant from teva pharmaceuticals neurocrine biosciences and the griffin foundation i'm your host lauren holder and today i've got dr leora fox and dr rachel harding on with me for our monthly hd buzz show um we are doing ask the scientist um i realized that um i don't know if everybody knows leora or not but she is hilarious for one um, you should really get to know her. She makes up wonderful songs. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to have her introduce herself. And Rachel is hilarious as well. Uh, but I've not heard you make up songs yet, Rachel. So we'll we'll see. Uh, we'll talk about what you're good at as well. Um, uh, Leora, can you start for us and kind of share your background with HD and how you got involved in HD? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that intro. Um, I don't know that I've ever received that compliment before, but I think what Lauren's referring to is at HDSA's convention last June, I did a, a silly parody of a Little Mermaid song to, um, yeah, to talk a little bit more about HDSA convention. But yeah, I'm the Assistant Director of Research and Patient Engagement at HDSA. Um, my my background is in HD research and in science communication. And at HDSA, I oversee our, our research program. So that's the, the grants that we give, the communications that we put out about research news, and then bringing the family voice to the drug development process. And I got involved in HD research as a graduate student. I just made a really wonderful connection with my advisor. And the whole field just sort of sucked me in and I, I didn't want to leave. And here I am. I've been in HDSA for about five years and uh, writing for HD Buzz um, for, gosh, it, probably seven or eight years now. So yeah, that's, that's me. Well, it, I think it's been determined, like you've got to make up a song every year now for convention. Um, I think I, we really I think need I to must. make your parody like a viral thing. So I'll have to share that later. Hey, I'm I'm open to it. <laughs> Before we go on to Rachel, I've got a question for you about um you mentioned that with your um with your advisor and being a graduate student. Um who was your advisor? I worked with Dr. Ai Yamamoto at Columbia University and uh sort of her I would say first claim to fame in the HD field was that she was one of the first to show that if you could kind of turn off the Huntington gene uh, and get rid of some of the, the, the harmful protein that builds up. Um, she showed that in a mouse, if you could do that, uh, then you could essentially make the mice a bit better. And so that's uh, where a lot of the current drugs, genetic drugs in development are coming from. Awesome. I, I, I looked into how the brain sort of clears away that protein during my graduate career. Yeah, the brain is an amazing thing. Um, sure. Okay. Rachel. Okay. Can you go ahead? You've been on with me before, but go ahead and share about yourself again and just let the community know how you got involved. Great. Thank you so much, Lauren. It's uh, lovely to be here with you again. Um, yeah. So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. 
Um, and my focus of the research that I do is all on Huntington's disease, really focused in on the Huntington protein itself. And so um, what I'm really interested in understanding is what does this complicated molecule that we know is really important in Huntington's disease, what does it look like? What is it doing in different cells of our bodies? What are its normal jobs? Um, in nerve cells and how does that go wrong sometimes when um, we have the HD mutation. And so, yeah, I, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here today. I'm like very keen on talking to the patient community. I also write for HD Buzz with Leora. I've been doing that for about three years now. So not quite as ex experienced or as good as Leora. Leora is not only an excellent singer, but also an excellent writer and editor. But uh, maybe next year, Leora, we should team up for a joint singing parody because, uh, I'm quite a good singer, actually, especially if I've had a glass of wine. So, <laughs> well, this is an audio medium, but I'm definitely blushing, and I <laughs> would be happy to collaborate on all things science and silly. Perfect, excellent. I can't wait to see it. Like this really has to happen. I want to see the duet next year. It'll be awesome. <laughs> we'll get started now. You know, it's got to be the best, the best parody ever. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So um, I've got a few questions that came in via Facebook. Um, for for those who don't know, I posted a chat on our Help for HD Live page on, on Facebook, and you guys are able to actually submit questions anytime that you want. Um, and one of the questions, first off, is pretty um, a pretty simple one because we've answered uh, multiple times. So I'm going to have you do it. It's how are the advancements coming in trials for a cure? And then the second part is how early can juvenile HD be detected? So let's start with the first part. How are the advancements coming in trials for a cure? That's a really wide question, right? So um, if you're thinking about kind of the range of clinical trials that are going on right now, it's always, it's always very tough to talk about the word cure, right? Because a cure implies that we're going to reverse everything and that you know, everyone's going to get better and is never going to get sick. And of course, that is the ultimate goal. I think that a lot of the genetic therapies that are currently in development have this greater goal of trying to slow down the progression or prevent the onset of symptoms um, and delay it quite a bit. So um, that's the, you know, that's the goal of, of a lot of the research that's in development. Um, and there's different trials happening towards that end. Um, there are from different angles. There are genetic drugs in development. Some of them involve viruses and putting a, a, a piece of, of man-made DNA in there that stops the, the harmful protein from being made. There are different ones that are being developed that get injected through the spine and have a, a similar approach. Um, and you know, this is a huge question because there's so many things in development. There's companies like Prolenia who are developing uh, the drug Prodopidine that has a completely different mechanism of action related to uh, preserving uh, nerve cells and nerve connections. Um, so I think um, in terms of the cure, we are working towards that in the field from many, many different angles, both companies and academics um, are you know, exploring the biology of HD and trying to translate that into drugs that will first you know, slow the, the progression of symptoms and then ultimately prevent symptoms from ever from ever coming on um i don't know if you have stuff to add to that rachel but it's that's like that is the question so thank you for that question 
Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said, Leora. I think the only things I would add is that, you know, it's important to remember, as Leora said, that there are things in clinical trials which are um, which are that disease-modifying therapies, which is what Leora referred to when she talks about slowing or stopping symptoms, So, um, which is different from reversing symptoms, right? And then there are other things in trials right now which are about treating specific symptoms, so whether that's the movement um, sort of career symptoms or other bits and pieces or the sort of uh, psychological symptoms as well. And so, you know, we need people working on all of these different fronts. And we're lucky at the moment that there are so many different companies working on so many different approaches and that stuff is happening in the clinic, but it's also happening before then as well. So there are scientists, you know, all over the world researching different ways to try and um, help folks with Huntington's disease by developing drugs that might work in any one of those different ways. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I had mentioned one company, we could, we could name a lot of them that are, that are in the space, right? There's Roche and Wave and Sage. And um, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna upset all of the companies that I haven't, um, I haven't named, but um, there's, there's, yeah, yes. <laughs> this is like a, yeah, a Novartis Unicure PTC, right? Yeah, there's, so there's a as lot a, of as a companies. person, as a person with HD, I want to answer this question too, because it's a different perspective. And I, and I think it's really easy for us in the HD community to sit there and go, well, when is there going to be a cure? You know, I tested when I was 20, I will be 37 next week. So it's been 17 years, no, two weeks from now, 17 years though, um, since I tested. And my first, you know, response whenever I tested, well, where, when is the cure? Where's it, where's it at? Um, I don't ask that anymore. My goal has changed. Um, if you had asked me five years, if I had hoped that there would be a cure, the answer would be no. Do I have hope that there's going to be a cure in my lifetime now? The answer is yes, I have more hope towards that because of where research is. Um, it is amazing how research has just blown up for HD. And um, that's huge for us. Um, and we should be so grateful for that. Um, but I no longer sit there and ask myself, when is the cure? I ask, okay, when is there something that can help us maybe temporarily even, you know, that gives us a little bit longer until we can get to the next thing that will last us even longer until we get there. Um, so I, I look at it in those, those baby steps rather than, um, uh, you know, we got to get it now and, and really just try to find something now that's going to help me for the next five years, then something that will help me for the next 10 years, you know, um, rather than I got, you know, obviously there's urgency, but I have to break it down for myself now because I'm 37 and I can't, you know, I can't wait for that. So it's a different way of looking at it now. And I have to say, I wish I'd looked at it, at it that way previously, um, because it's a lot easier to get to that goal of, you know, something that's going to help for five years, you know, give me five years longer and not a lot of side effects versus, you know, what, what we're striving for right now. Um, those baby steps matter. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Lauren. I just wanted to say that I think you really hit the nail on the head there, that, you know, most of the big discoveries in medicines to treat all kinds of different diseases is actually really incremental. So it's these very small steps that we take along the way. And if we're really lucky, we'll find something which will blow everything else out of the water and you get these big discoveries, um, which will change everything. 
Um, and we can hope for one of those, but you know, it's also these incremental small steps forward are also really important as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you're looking for that cure, maybe break, break it down a little bit, you know, get to a smaller goal for, for a little bit and more realistic. And you'll find that actually helps you in your HD journey because you're not expecting this huge thing that seems like we're never getting to it. We actually are very close to something that's going to help us, you know, with the disease. And it may be a cocktail of things that helps us, but will provide a better quality of life for us you know, for five years for us to make it to the thing that is bigger, you know, so kind of break it down. Um, it may help you through your HD journey because it helps me. But even thinking back to, you know, the basic level of knowledge that scientists who were HD experts had 17 years ago when, you know, you talk about when you had your test to today, it is astronomical differences between what we knew then and what we know now and also what tools we have available to us whether that's much better animal models we have monkey models now we have sheep models we have all these different things available to us so many new technologies as well uh, which was just unthinkable back then and now we have all this stuff kind of almost at our fingertips so you know there's a lot to be hopeful for as well Oh, yes. Absolutely. 17 years ago, I was told this is a death sentence. You don't need to do anything. And I I remember looking at a genetic counselor and going, well, that's not going to be me. And, you know, and now I can honestly say, like, we are in such a good place with research um, that I am. I, I still have hope, um, you know, and hopeful that there will be something. I don't think it will be a cure, but I think that it will be something that helps with quality of life. So. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of researchers who would absolutely agree with that. It's extraordinary what has happened, even just having come up in HD research as a grad student 10 years ago, how different things are at conferences and what the atmosphere is in the room around new discoveries every time. So oh, yeah. yeah, thanks for sharing that, Lauren. Well, thank you guys. So let's let's delve into the second part of this question. So how early can juvenile HD be detected? So that, that yeah, so that that question you could kind of look at that from different angles, I think, because the HD gene is present from birth, but it's usually up to a person to decide whether they want to test for it when they become an adult, when they when they reach 18. I think you know, folks will get tested for juvenile HD if there is a family history and if um, they are becoming symptomatic when they're young. Um, so it's possible to test um, quite early, although it's it usually happens when a person is, is an adult and it really would only be recommended, I think, um, for someone who's, who's already kind of experiencing symptoms as, as a young person. Um, I don't know if I've really interpreted that question um, the right way, really, because I think, you know, it's it's always hard to to make that decision about testing. And there are other things that can that can come up that might resemble something that's also related to HD, et cetera. So um, is that do you think that's that's sort of the angle that this person was was getting at? I'm not sure. Um, I have the same problem of. You know, if we're talking about actually detecting HD, you can you can detect that, you know, in utero. If you're pregnant and you do chorionic villus sampling, they can tell you whether or not your child is going to have HD. Um, with in vitro, they can tell you whether or not 
your, you know, your child has HD and that's what they do is they test the cells to make sure that the HD is not passed on. So if you're talking about that, then it, I mean, it can be detected very early. If you're talking about a child who is like, what's the earliest a child developed symptoms and HD was detected, I think that's a, a different question. Do we know how young a person is that like the youngest person? I think um, it's um, juvenile is anything that's under symptoms beginning under 20. And I think it can be as early as sort of toddler years, sort of, sort of two, three years old. That's my understanding. Um, you know, I think that some of the uh, the family members in Venezuela from whom the, the gene was was discovered, um, there were some some very young people who were, were diagnosed at yeah, age two or three. But I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if that is what the what the person was asking. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Because um, yeah, that's what I've heard. Like, um, I think the youngest was one or something where symptoms were mm -hmm. seen. Um, so fairly early, um, which means a really high <clears throat> CAG repeat. But yeah, um, also extremely rare, right? So that's extremely rare, rare, yeah. Very unusual. Yes, um, but it would make sense in that Venezuelan community. Um, can you explain a little bit about Venezuela and how they played a role in HD? Sure. Yeah, that's uh, that's a whole historical piece, I think. Um, so there was a the team... Uh, yeah, there was a team of researchers led by Dr. Nancy Wexler um, and, you know, researchers, doctors, um, all, you know, familiar with HD and, um, and her father, Milton Wexler, and they sort of became the, the gene hunters and they took a team to the Lake Maracaibo region of Venezuela in the 1970s and 80s, I want to say. Um, and they did many, many clinical exams, took blood samples, um, and created a, a sort of a massive family tree to go along with those genetics, um, mapped out the genetics of lots of these folks, and, and ultimately found this, this CAG repeat mutation that was, that was causing this. I think they also ultimately mapped out the whole history of the whole sort of family tree of HD in Venezuela um, originating from Spanish sailors in the 1500s. I'm these dates. I'm, <laughs> I'm not looking exactly. Oh, I want to see um, that. I have not seen that. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, I don't have the historical stuff in front of me, but essentially it was, it was this, this big team and all of these volunteers from very, very large HD families in this, poverty-stricken region of, of Venezuela and they you know set up different resources for those folks there and went back yearly for a long time to continue collecting medical information and biological samples yeah, yeah. well I definitely if you have the stuff about going back to the 1500s and Spanish sailors and stuff send that my I way I can't remember so exactly interested. where I read or heard that but we'll we'll look we'll look for it for you okay that sounds good <laughs> um that was just my question I'm sorry that wasn't from anybody else except I thought it was really interesting um so here's a really important question and something that I think it's really important we address so um do they feel that trials will open up towards more advanced HD rather than very early stage HD anytime soon yeah this is a really this is a very good question and one that we hear a lot at HDSA and it's a really tough question because 
when you design a clinical trial, the goal really is to make that happen in as fast a way as possible and accurate a way as possible, such that the, you know, the product, the drug that you're creating can eventually be given to a much wider range of people. So in terms of clinical trials, there's this sort of um, there's a sort of sweet spot that they're getting at where they're where they're trying for Huntington's disease to be able to measure symptoms. So they must really have begun already before we really have accurate biomarkers. And we can talk more about that. But um, they we also don't want to do trials um, at a point where it would be very, very difficult to show that someone is improving. Um, and so it's really a tough question in that there's a lot of folks who have more advanced symptoms who would love to be participating in a lot of these trials and, and you know, helping research forward and potentially trying experimental therapies. Um, but as far as the actual, the research side of it, in terms of making sure that that things go smoothly and can be measured and that it's it's very difficult to do it at later stages. So at this point, most of the the trials that are open to folks, especially drug trials, are in much earlier stages of HD. That's not to say that a person who is in the later stages of HD wouldn't benefit from some of these medications if they came to market. And there are also other types of opportunities for folks to participate in research and advance research um, by doing observational research, imaging, blood draws, all different sorts of things. And role HD is a great thing for anyone to participate in. But as far as drug trials, it's a really tough question because for the most part, these trials are being are being offered to, to people who are in earlier stages. So thank you for that question. It's um, I also not, want to point out that the, um, yeah, that the observational studies that are available, that the the research that's going on that does not involve any type of drug going to somebody. They're really important for the advanced stages. Um, so you can still participate in those those observational studies to get the information we need to create these clinical trials, right? Um, whereas being in a clinical trial where they're giving you a drug, the bad part about the advanced stage HD is you got to think about what other con medical conditions um, does the person have that could cause them to not be eligible? What other drugs are they taking? Such as in advanced stages, you need more things like the, um, you know, like dad was on um, Risperdal. Um, so, you know, is that going to cause an issue in being in, uh, so he didn't qualify for clinical trials because of his diabetes. He was insulin dependent. Um, they have to take all of those things into consideration, not only because of the patient's um, health, but also because it could mess with re with the actual results. And so that's something as, as people are in advanced stages, it may not be the best thing for you, but don't count out observational studies because they're what get us to the clinical trials. Um, so it's really important that those in advanced stages still participate. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really important point that there's, yeah, they're also looking at whether a person has other health issues. Yeah, it's tough though. It's really, it's very, very frustrating. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a very wide range of folks who are eager to participate in drug trials. In the end, drug trials are 
are experiments, right? Some people are not getting the drug. Some people are, um, some, sometimes the drug is not going to work or it's, you know, potentially going to make things worse. Of course, it's always the hope that things will, will work. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of ways that one can participate in research um, without participating in, in a drug trial specifically. So thanks for bringing that up too. Any thoughts on that, Rachel? Yeah, no, I, I agree with um, everything that's been said. I think, um, you know, there are many ways to sort of contribute towards like, our, you know, a better understanding of Huntington's disease. And the prime example that like, things like enroll can do is help create new systems by which we can help categorize patients so we can measure how much better or you know um they're getting or like you know if things are getting worse or if things are stopping and slowing down and um it's really important that we have all that data so we understand things like uh, Leora mentioned biomarkers um and so there's a number of observational studies things like uh, HD clarity where you know, you can give spinal fluid and they'll look at all the different molecules that are in your spinal fluid and track how they change over time. Things like that are incredibly important. Um, and it also, you know, studies like that build up these things that we call biobanks. So this is um, like a resource for scientists and clinicians who are doing research to be able to access you know, a spinal fluid sample from a patient that they know is at this stage of Huntington's disease so they can see how does it differ from a patient at this stage of Huntington's disease, for example? And those are really important resources. So sort of donation of um, not only your time and everything that you need to give to enroll, but also if you can give, you know, bloods or plasma or CSF, these sort of things are really, really important. Yeah. And if you're looking for ways that you might be able to participate, I definitely recommend going to hdtrialfinder.org. Um, there's that's HDSA's clinical trials matching service, and it's open to anyone in an HD family. You can fill out a profile for yourself or a loved one. You can just kind of poke around the site and explore as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, you can learn about the different ways that, that, um, that you can get involved there. We've also got lots of surveys that um, you can just do from the comfort of your home. That's at hdsa.org slash surveys. Hey, Rachel, could you talk a little bit about, I am so sorry, guys, my my kid found me, so you may hear squeaking in the background and stuff. Um, can you talk about CSF fluid and how that's being used now in research and why it's important? Absolutely. So nearly all of the trials that are currently underway uh, in the clinic that are called Huntington Lowering Trials. So these are trials that use different types of drugs. Um, there's companies like Unicure, PTC, uh, Roche, Wave, all of these people are doing Huntington lowering trials. And what they want to do is see how the levels of the Huntington protein are changing in the brain, which is really, really difficult to do. So what they do instead is rather than cut open people's brains, which would be a terrible and unethical thing to do, what they actually do is take spinal fluid from patients. So they take this CSF, cerebrospinal fluid, I always say that really funny, sorry. And uh, so CSF is what scientists generally call it. And so what they'll do is they'll try and measure the Huntington protein in that fluid instead as a kind of proxy for how well the drug is working. So basically having like a really good understanding of what's happening in CSF 
either from people who are in trials, which are testing Huntington lowering drugs, but also having like a really big mass of data from patients at all stages of the disease with different CAG numbers, uh, different ages, whatever that might be, gives us a really good understanding of kind of where that baseline is and how things are changing over time and other things that we might want to be looking for. So another thing that we'll often look for in CSF during clinical trials, but also to monitor how HD symptoms are progressing is um, another protein molecule called NFL or neurofilament light. And this is used actually in a number of different neurodegenerative diseases, including Huntington's, uh, to show like how um, the brain health is basically deteriorating over time. And so something that scientists are hoping for is they can stop the increase in the levels of this protein called NFL over time. And that might indicate that brain health is improving after the drug's been given. And that's kind of something that people are hopeful for. But we can also use it to understand if a drug is maybe damaging the brain. So if a drug isn't working the way that we expect and the way that we hope, we would see an increase in that protein. So that's a good way to be like, you know, maybe we need to press pause on this program, or maybe we need to sit and reevaluate what's going on. So but we can't do any of those studies unless we have those samples from a patient community and people who were not in the patient community as well. We need good controls as well. So we understand what's happening. Um, and that's something that I think most pe people can get involved with if they want to, if there's a site near you. Are there other things like CSF fluid? Cause I know we've discussed on the show before that um, you can find HD you can find Huntington in the rest of the body. And there are levels of Huntington that are higher in certain areas. Um, what are what are the higher areas? Um, do you know what the, the higher ones other than just the brain are? Um, and could we take anything from, like, do we know if we can take anything from that yet or is that still being researched? That's a really interesting question. My understanding is that Huntington levels are very high within the brain. And then I, and I'm, if I'm remembering correctly from my reading during grad school, I think there is also maybe high in the, the testes and the ovaries. Um, I, I don't want to speak incorrectly there, um, but um, I think maybe what you're getting at here is this sort of idea that you can a lot of these therapies are trying to lower the levels of Huntington, but maybe really what we need to be doing is lowering levels of the harmful Huntington and increasing levels of the good Huntington um, because everybody inherits one copy of the gene from, from each parent. And usually, you know, people with HD have one parent with, with HD. So, um, you know, people will have a half mutant expanded Huntington in their bodies and half normal length Huntington. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure. Um, Rachel, do you have any more insight given that you're working on the Huntington protein? Yeah. So my understanding is that the brain is the highest, um, but scientists measure these things in quite different ways. So sometimes they're looking for how much of the Huntington message molecule is there. And sometimes they're looking for how much of the actual protein is there. And depending on like who you speak to in the Huntington's disease field, some people think the protein is really important. Some people think the message is really important. And it's probably, you know, I think it remains a little bit unclear exactly which one is the most important for disease. Um, but yeah, so when they're measuring these different ways, another thing is, yeah, the pancreas and also um, 
things like muscle tissue also has a really high level of the Huntington message. Um, but the brain is definitely the one that has the most Huntington protein. And that level in the brain doesn't change or does change, right? It doesn't stay the same. We, I thought for the longest time that our Huntington's levels stayed the same, but that's not true, correct? Uh, levels, I thought the levels actually went up in the brain or they, something about what Ed said about, um, about, them, about them increasing over time. So certainly the the protein can build up uh, in the brain and, and kind of accumulate in clumps in different parts of the brain. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know what that means really about overall levels of, of Huntington throughout the body, but definitely the protein kind of clumps up and it's, there's there's been a lot of research around whether those clumps themselves are harmful or if a different form, an unclumped form is 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 less harmful or more harmful? Is the brain trying to protect itself by moving this toxic protein into uh, into clumps? If you break them up, is it um, is that helpful? Um, there's there's a lot of research around the accumulation of Huntington, for sure. Yeah, I think uh, this is probably where I'm overthinking this as a scientist and uh, not <laughs> yeah. as a base level question, which is that you know when we're talking about how much protein there is as a scientist what you're thinking about is how much of that new protein molecule is being made all the time whereas what leora rightly points out is that um what goes wrong a lot of the time in huntington's disease is that you know with a with a normal version of the huntington molecule it will be made it does its job for a certain period of time and then after a while it starts to not work so well so all the sort of systems in our body are able to kind of dispose of older molecules. And there's kind of like almost like a tap with, you know, a drain in the sink. And so if you have your tap running and the water will stay in the sink for a while, but then eventually it will drain away. But the problem is with Huntington's disease is that draining process for the Huntington molecule doesn't work very well. So it's like someone putting a stopper in the sink and it will start to slowly build up just because our, our cells in our body just aren't able to get rid of it properly um when you have the hd mutation so that's kind of what leads to the build-up but you're still making new huntington that is probably working well it's just that you have all this other stuff around as well so in that sense it's like i mean that's one of the things i think is really interesting is that there's lots of different sort of variations or sort of flavors of the huntington protein and we still are trying to figure out which one is the most responsible for disease which one do we actually want to get rid of in by using different types of drugs. So that's kind of what a lot of people are researching at the moment. I'm that 100% really going, analogy. I was just going to say, I'm going to steal oh, that. Awesome. <laughs> I love that. That was such a good analogy. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, Leora. Oh, were you, no. Were you? No, I don't think I have anything else to say, say. But I loved that analogy. <laughs> I might save that bit just because I think it's such a, a, a good analogy. Um, before I let you go, because I know that we are out of time now, um, do you have any final thoughts for the community? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I think that just the the act of of being present and learning about this, and and just you know actively having hope in research is in itself a form of advocacy because you can tell those things to the people in your lives whether they're they're also struggling with Huntington's or whether they're you know just people in your life who 
can be aware of what's going on in the research field. All of this has implications for many diseases. There's lots of research crossover. And um, yeah, I just want to say thanks for, for listening and for, for, for being present to, to learn about the science. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's been like a complicated time with clinical trial results and, you know, some disappointing news on a number of different fronts. But um, I think we, you know, it's important that we stay hopeful and remember that, you know, each trial is essentially, it's a really big and complicated experiment. Even if things don't go the way that we hope that they will, there's still so much that we learn from every single one. And this is comes back to, you know, the point you made earlier, Lauren, about this kind of incremental process that even things that can seem on the surface to be failures are actually in some ways there are successes and there are good things that come out of those things and we can keep moving forward all the time there's things we understand about clinical trials at the end of 2022 that we didn't know at the beginning of 2020 so even though we've been through this hard time and had the pandemic and everything else going on you know we're still things are still moving forward full steam ahead and um yeah, we're moving closer towards cures and therapies always. Yeah, I think the one thing that I, or one of the things that I have learned from what we, you know, do I consider them failures? <laughs> yes, because, you know, it's a setback for me um, and for the community. But um, one of the things that I've learned is that you really need to educate yourself on research and what research is going on to know why it's happening and how we go forward. And um, it's really about the HD community working closely with research and pharma to be able to get to where we wanna be. Um, if we do not work together and we don't collaborate, we're just not gonna get there. So um, I think it's so important that we have these shows and we ask the questions we wanna ask in order to educate ourselves on what you guys have to deal with and you guys can get feedback from us and it just really helps us all in the end um get to where we want to be so thank you ladies for coming on absolutely thanks for having us and providing this platform absolutely um so everybody who is listening please make sure that you tune in every thursday at 4 p.m eastern time i promise you won't always hear squeaking in the background um <laughs> But for a new show, we've got a lot of great things coming up, including Dr. Sarah Tabrizi um, will be coming on to talk about clinical staging, um, the new staging system for HD and research. Um, so that is up and coming after the HSG um, convention, symposium, whatever they call it, coming up um, in a couple weeks. Um, so until next time, everybody, take care and love you. You are listening to Help for HD Live. The first podcast created for families living with Huntington's and juvenile Huntington's disease. Don't forget to find us on iTunes, Blog Talk, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. You can also search over 500 archived episodes and other projects at helpforhd.org. To watch us in person, find Help for HD TV on YouTube and subscribe and ring the bell for notifications on new content. Help for HD Live is going on air in five, four, Three, two, one.